All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. John writes, And after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat on the th- there was like a, pres- a jasper or sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes, And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature uh, had a face like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they did not rest day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whatever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." I don't think there's one person here today as a believer in Jesus Christ who isn't looking forward to heaven. Would I be incorrect by saying that? I'm looking forward to heaven. Are you looking forward to heaven? What's interesting, though, is that when I dig a little deeper and I ask further questions from Christians who are excited about going to heaven, I'm amazed to find how quickly they know very little about the heaven in which they're excited to see. The Bible is replete with examples concerning heaven. In fact, in the New Testament alone, heaven is mentioned 276 times. And yet it's still such a mystery to us all. Most people, I find, and even Christians alike, they, instead of looking at their Bibles, will often access the halls of worthless information called YouTube. And they Google, what is heaven like? And they begin to discover video after video after video after video. Do you get the point yet? Video that there's a lot of people who believe they've had experiences concerning heaven. Now, are their experiences genuine or not? Well, the only way that we can tell is if it coincides and agrees with God's word. Today, the personal experience is the ground, the bedrock for personal truth. 
But when it comes to the things of God, God doesn't ask us to base things solely upon our experiences, but He instructs us clearly that we are to base all of our thinking concerning Him, heaven, hell, the last days, etc., on God's Word. So today we get a glimpse of heaven together. And we are going to wander through heaven, through John's writings. And we're going to look and see what John saw and the significance of, the significance of those things. And together we're going to learn about heaven. Now again, everyone often hits the internet when they're looking up theology. They Google it instead of flipping to it in their Bible and not really qualifying if that information is accurate and correct, judging things by the Word of God. And you will find testimony after testimony of individuals who have experienced heaven, and maybe some of them have. Some have claimed that as atheists, they've seen heaven in a moment of near-death experience or death experience and have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But when it comes to the afterlife, when it comes to near-death experiences, as far as I have found, none are qualified to talk about it as much as Jesus is, right? Jesus wasn't in the grave for three seconds. He wasn't even in the grave for three hours. He was in the grave for three days. And I haven't found one near-death experience that said, I was dead for three days and came back. So let's take a look at heaven from the basis of the Bible. And by doing so, I think we will be greatly encouraged and even look forward to it even more. One of the first experiences that we see in the Bible where the veil, of he- the veil was removed and heaven was saw- seen was none other than in Acts chapter 7. When Stephen was being stoned, we find that there was a moment that he looked up and the veil was torn back and he saw his risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ standing, waiting to receive him in heaven. In fact, the the writer of Acts, Luke writes in Acts 7, 54 through 56, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, those were the religious leaders, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now that should begin to encourage you right away. Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father means that he is in all authority with the Father that he holds that place of prominence in heaven and that he was exactly who he said he was. So the very first glimpse that we get in the New Testament of this heavenly experience where Stephen himself sees his Lord waiting for him is encouraged to know that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the requirements of the death and the resurrection, that he was the perfect Savior, And he now resides in heaven in a place of authority at the right hand of God the Father. The second prominent experience of heaven is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
And Paul speaks in the third person about an individual who is caught up to the third heaven. Now, the New Testament talks about three heavens. The first heaven being the sky, the blue sky that we see, the birds flying through the heavens. The second heaven is, of course, space, where, of course, the planets and the moon and so, uh, so far, uh, you know, the various galaxies that we know of and the expansion of the universe. It's really interesting that one uh, scientist wrote this week that he's absolutely amazed that a university in England has now given the moon its own time zone. What? So make sure the next time you go to the moon, you change your watch before going. Incredible what we spend money on, isn't it? Unless it's a glimpse into the future and we're going to be commuting here and back from the moon on Elon Musk airlines, you know, or space lines, I should say. But Paul talks about the third heaven, which is beyond, of course, the celestial heaven. And he talks about an individual that was taken there, and most believe that it was Paul himself who was taken there. Not knowing if he was in the body or out of the body, most believe that it's when he was dragged out thinking that he was dead, that God allowed him to see heaven, and he heard things inex inexplainable, he, he, inexpressible. He couldn't, couldn't uh, paint us a picture verbally of what he heard and saw. That's what the term means in the Greek. As he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, he says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, but I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. For I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for man to utter." Meaning, he felt that he couldn't do it justice in his description of what he heard and most likely what he saw being taken to heaven. I don't know what to think, but I guarantee this, we are going to be awestruck the moment we step out of this world and into heaven. As we come to Revelation 4 and 5, we get a glimpse of heaven like no other place in the New Testament. And we begin in verse 1 where John is summoned to heaven. John is currently exiled on the island of Patmos after being persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ and tr they tried to boil him in oil and he didn't boil. It was the first apostle we ever saw in a jacuzzi. They finally said, we, we don't know what to do with this guy, so they banished him to the island of Patmos, and on that island is where God gave him the revelation of the book of Revelation, the return, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And we found in Revelation chapter 1 that the book is divided into three sections, those things that were, those things that are, and those things that are yet to come. And in chapter 1, we looked at the things in the past. In chapters 2 and 3, John looked at the things in the present, his day. And from chapter 4 on, we are looking onward. And it all begins 
this whole journey through Revelation truly now begins with John being summoned to heaven. Notice with me in verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And there is the indication that we are entering into the third section of the book of Revelation. But summons to heaven. In the manner in which he was, many believe is a description, a type of the rapture of the church. Notice the similarities. John's being summoned by a voice like a trumpet, and we know that a trumpet of the archangel will blow at the time of the rapture of the church. Again, it's a type of. It's a uh, shadow of those things still yet to come. I believe that God's church will be removed before the judgment of the world, the seven years of tribulation. The first three and a half years uh, characterized by the peace that will politically be established by the Antichrist. The last three and a half years established by the chaos created by the Antichrist as he is filled with Satan himself. I believe the church will be spared from that moment in time, those seven years, as John was taken up into heaven. As Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians that we'll be taken up into heaven, caught up, rapturus in the Latin, harpazo in the Greek, caught up to heaven to be with the Lord from that point forward, the rapture of the church. And as we have said, there is no prophecy needed to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church can take place. It could happen at any moment, at any time. And because of that, we live in the sense of an imminent return of our Lord and Savior, tr walking with Him in holiness, looking to be used by Him for His glory and His purposes, knowing that our, our Father, our Savior, our Lord could come back at any moment for us. So John summons to heaven, and once in heaven, he, in verse 2, immediately... I was in the Spirit, and behold, notice the very first thing that he sees in heaven, which truly becomes the focal point of chapter 4, and that is the throne of God. The throne of God is found in heaven, and because of that, it indicates to us today, as it did to the readers back then, that God is in control, that God is sovereign that there is no one that God answers to. But he further describes what he sees. Not only is a throne there in heaven, but the throne is occupied in heaven. Notice that. The throne is occupied. The one who sat on the throne was there. This is very interesting because... It shows that God is present with us. In His sovereign reign of His creation, God is present. He is not absent. Now, this is important because we're going to look at the further thrones in heaven that the first time that we're introduced to them in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, they are empty. But now, in chapter 4 of Revelation, those same thrones are filled. 
But from the beginning, God is sovereignly placed in heaven. For heaven begins and ends with the throne room of God. Now, what's interesting is that if you look throughout the Old Testament in various places, when kings were in the throne room of their palaces, their castles, if you will, palaces would probably be more accurately describing what they occupied, one could not just enter in to the presence of the king without either A, being invited, or B, being summonsed, meaning one is a gracious invitation, the other one is you must come. In fact, this is where Esther found herself, where she needed to go before the king, and yet she knew she hadn't been summonsed and she hadn't been invited, and she knew that if the king was displeased by her entering in based on her own will, that she could suffer grave consequences, meaning the losing of her life. And yet she believed that he would show her favor, though wasn't 100% sure of that, and proceeded into the throne room to petition and to intercede on behalf of her people, the Jewish people. Throughout the New Testament, we find that the believer in Jesus Christ is not summonsed, but continuously invited into the throne room of God. And we can come in and approach our Father at any time. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that we can go boldly into the throne room of God. And I heard one Jewish professor who had become a Christian say that the word boldness that is used there is very interesting. It isn't a presumptuous type of entering. It's a confident type of entering. Is the type of entering that he said would best describe a child running in to his father's room and jumping on his lap. I thought that was very interesting. We are welcomed into the throne room of God, and we enter that throne room through prayer. And we can, in, we can interact with him at any time. He always welcomes us. He's, the door is always open to us. We just have to enter in. We have to go before Him. Oh, I'm not saying that we're ever out of His presence. He's everywhere. He knows all things. He can do all things. He's God, right? But He loves when we come to Him and we interact with Him and we display the love that we have for Him in those periods of time solely based on the fact that He first loved us. And John sees himself now in heaven before the throne of God and one who sat on it. In verse 3, John tries to explain to us what God is like. He begins to try to explain the God who sits on that throne. But before we go there, I want to remind ourselves that this isn't the first time that one has approached into the throne room of God. Back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we have the Isaiah who is brought before God after King Uzziah died. And I want to read this to you because his experience was one of awe. Isaiah writes, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Now above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand uh, a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. When God first revealed himself to his people after the exodus of Egypt, when they came to the foot of Mount Sinai, remember what the Bible says. They could only go so far, they could not touch the mountain or they would die. They were distant from God. When the tabernacle was created, when the temple was built, there was a constant reminder to the people of their separation between themselves and God. And what separated them was their sin. And the first thing that Isaiah identifies in the presence of a holy God is his personal unholiness. Realizing that his unholiness could not be dealt with in and of himself. The very first thing he realized was the fact that God needed to do something. He wasn't worthy to be in God's presence at that time. And so God did something. God cleansed him in the manner in which he desired to cleanse him, to allow him that presence. Now, when you come to the New Testament, things are really different, aren't they? Now we can come boldly into the throne room of God, why? Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because of his death and his validation through his resurrection, we now can come boldly into his throne room and interact with our dad, jumping up on his lap. And I don't mean to be uh, irreverent by saying that, but I want to really emphasize the intimacy and the personal relationship that we can have with God the Father through Jesus Christ, a relationship solely based on love. And that's what God desires of us. Now, in verse 3, when he goes to describe God, he uses stones to do so. And he who sat there was like. Now, as soon as you see the word like there, he is looking for a vocabulary to explain what he is seeing. He's looking for a vocabulary to explain what he's seeing. Have you ever had one of those moments where you realize that you're visually seeing something, well, that you really can't put into words, right? And I was thinking about that in my personal life. When was the first time I ever had an experience like that? Well, we have to go all the way back to the 1970s. I was 10 years old. I had hair. 
And my dad took me to see a movie that I was so awestruck by, I didn't know how to explain it afterwards. And today we see it and we're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, we've seen that a million times and so forth. But sitting there and seeing it, and that was Star Wars. I couldn't believe it. I was just in awe. I mean, they didn't have anything like that. It was the 70s. I mean, we had disco and bell bottoms. It's not a really, really great decade. Okay? But seeing that, I was awestruck. And the reason I say I couldn't explain it is because my grandparents asked me after the movie, well, what was it like? And I couldn't even explain it. The other time was the first time I ever went to Disney World. And I went to the kingdom. And I saw that. You can't put it into words. Well, of course, this is so much more majestic than any one of those. But he doesn't have the vocabulary to describe what he is seeing. And we can't become dogmatic because most scholars believe that the stones in which he uses uh, in various uh, manuscripts that we have of Revelation, they are different in some way. So the type of stone and the color of the stone, we can't be dogmatic about what they represent. But with the word like there, he says, like a jasper and a stardust stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, when we begin to look at biblical descriptions... One of the things we must not do is take our definitions of words into the text. For example, you will find TikTok videos of individuals who believe that because the term rainbow is used in the Bible, God condones the lifestyles of individuals who identify themselves with a rainbow. I hate to tell them that this was around thousands of years before they ever existed. And we don't need to adopt their definition, they need to adopt ours. And when we went down to see the ark some years ago, we were all tempted to purchase a t-shirt that said, reclaim the rainbow, and what it really means. But scholars are in agreement that what John is seeing here is the omnipotence governed by the mercy of God. They, he, they believe that when the early readers read this verse, they would walk away with the understanding that once again, God is confirmed in his omnipotence. There's nothing that he cannot do. Again, that is absolutely in agreement with the idea and the concept of a throne, that he's sovereign and in control. But going back to the original definition of the word rainbow, in the process of hermeneutics, which is the study of the Bible, there is a principle of first mention. What do I mean by that? The principle of first mention is this, that the first time something is mentioned in the Bible often gives us the clearest definition of that word. For example, the word rainbow. Where did we first see the word rainbow used? Of course, it was after Moses and the ark. Oh, right. Okay. Are we listening? It's Noah and the ark. It was a trick question. 
And it meant the mercies of God, the promise of God not to judge by fire, I'm sorry, by flood again. And again, those same individuals on TikTok often use that, saying, look, God promises that he'll never judge the world again. Is that what God actually says? No. He says he won't judge by a flood again. Next time, he's going he's to use fire, and all things are going to dissolve, according to Peter. So we must be very careful not to you know, superimpose our understanding of words upon the Bible according to our current cultural definition. In an in a interview that I did once uh, years and years ago on the radio, the, the uh, interviewer asked me what do I feel is the greatest concern uh, that the Christian church is facing today, and I think she was a little taken back by my answer. I said, my concern is that we adopt what I call a cultural contextualization of the Bible, where we superimpose our ideas upon the Bible, where we read into the Bible things that are not there, uh, places where we believe that certain characters of the Bible are transgender because Joseph was given a coat of many colors. What? Or that the rainbow, of course, see, even God supported the LGTB community. We cannot culturally contextualize the Bible. We can't do it. And I believe that is absolutely what Satan wants us to do in his attempt to redefine words in our vocabulary. Have you noticed that words are being redefined every single day in our culture to mean something completely different? But the Bible is clear. The Bible says that God sits there in His omnipresence, I'm sorry, in His omnipotence, and He's governed by the mercy that He has for you and I. He further then goes on to describe what is around the throne. Notice in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the 24 thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. The first time that we see these thrones are in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Daniel 7, 9 and 10, I watched, he writes, till thrones, plural, were put in place, God preparing a place. And the Ancient of Dade was seated, his garment was white as snow. And the hair of his head was like a pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him, and thousands ministered to him. Tens of thousands times tens of thousands stood before him. And the court was seated, and the books were opened. This is what's known as a foreshadowing of eschatology. Daniel begins by telling us that God is preparing a place, these thrones to be occupied. John is now saying these thrones are occupied by these 24 elders. Now, who are the 24 elders? Well, we need to go to their description. 
clothed in white robes and crowned with gold crowns. In the book of 1 Chronicles 24, we find that in the Old Testament, we have 24 divisions of priests that rotate in their temple ministry. So 24 divisions of priests serve before the Lord in their temple ministry. In 1 Chronicles 25, verses 1 through 31, I'll let you read those on your own, we have an assignment of the 24 orders of the Levites for prophecy and praise. God, again, foreshadowing what he eventually was going to do. In this number of 24 and in the uh, identity of the Levitical priest, we see, I believe, a clear segue into the identity of those seated seated on the thrones. The number 24 is important. And as we see here, 24 sits before God. And I agree with those, such as Dr. Robert Mounts and John Wolvert and others, that these represents the two covenants that allow those individuals before God. The first 12 represented by, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. The second 12 represented by the 12 apostles, meaning symbolically that this is the, this is the fulfillment of God allowing sinful man to return into his presence. Notice that they're covered with white robes. Paul the Apostle made it clear that we are to take off the old man and put on the new. Peter talks about us now becoming priests before God, doesn't he? The crowns we are promised throughout the New Testament for our reward. This represents us before God himself. The old covenant wasn't perfect. And it could not justify anyone, which was then completed in the new covenant that Jesus Christ established. And the thrones that were empty before Daniel are now filled. And notice that if we go back to that verse in Daniel, a thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. And the court was seated, and the books were opened. This is the promise that John is making to his readers and recipients of his original letter saying that those who are in Christ Jesus, the omnipotent, sovereign God, governed by love and mercy, we who are His will find rest in His presence and we have the assurance of entering into His kingdom. In verse 5, and from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Verse 5 parallels the experience of the people before Mount Sinai. If you read in the book of Exodus, you quickly learn that God showed himself as a holy God. And because of their sin, they were separated from God and judgment reigned. His wrath reigned. But here, notice that the wrath is there and it will be poured out upon the earth. But those who are in Christ, clothed in white, the righteousness of our King and Savior, 
crowned with the rewards of our service to him before his presence, will experience the promise of mercy discovered there in the rainbow. Then we come again to this very unusual description of the Holy Spirit that goes all the way back to Isaiah 61. We've talked about this numerous times, so I won't do it again here this morning, but it is the presence of the Holy Spirit there in the throne room of God. And before verse 6, the throne there was a sea of glass. Now, this is extremely interesting, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Well, before we get to those interesting four creatures before God, notice the mention of the sea of glass. Now, how many of you have read Revelation chapter 4 before? Okay, I think we all have. And the sea of glass would be easily just read through quickly and kind of just saying, oh, how pretty that is, you know standing on the shore and looking at, you know, still water and the sunset, you can see it uh, setting. Uh, Just last year, we were in Door County, and we saw something that we didn't think we'd ever see. It was a moonrise over the water. It was the most incredible thing that we had ever seen, Uh, just watching the moon rise. We thought it was a sailboat on fire. We're like, oh, I hope they're going to be okay. Do you have the chips? No. Uh, But it was a moon rising out of the horizon. But what is, all, what is the sea of glass all about? Frankenheim, it's his name, had a very interesting observation. Oh, Frankenheim. In the tabernacle and in the temple, one of the first things that the priest would come to was called the laver, L-A-V-E-R. It is where they would wash their hands and their feet before entering in to minister before the Lord, of course, in the Holy of Holies, before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Levir was interestingly made. It, was, it had a reflected bottom, so the water was in it. It had a reflected bottom to it, a mirror, basically, is what it was. In fact, there are historians and archaeologists that tell us that the Levir was often made out of mirrors. What was the purpose of that? When the priest came there to wash himself before entering into the presence of God, he was continuously reminded of the fact that the water was simply only washing away the surface. He would have to look at himself in that mirror. And as he washed himself and prepared himself to go before the Lord, he realized that it was temporal that this water was never going to make him eternally clean and that he would have to do it again and again and again and that by washing himself and being allowed to do so and then entering into the presence of God, it was a continuous reminder of the grace of God. But now we come to heaven and the sea of glass before the throne room of God would reflect the one that is exalted. 
the sea of glass would reflect God, reminding us continuously that the only reason that we are there is because of Him. Think about that. Think about the New Testament teachings that tell us that the permanent washing from the blood of Christ is something that does not need to be repeated. That the atonement that He set forward for us, like the reflecting pool before the Washington Monument, as you see that incredible reflection from the, of course, the uh, the memorial to Abraham Lincoln. We're going to be standing there and the sea of glass is going to be reminding us that the whole reason that we are there is because of Him. And that we cannot, cannot take credit for ourselves. And then we come to the four living creatures, which again we just were introduced to in Isaiah. These are undoubtedly a class of angels, either seraphim or cherubim. Some believe that the representation of the lion, the calf, the man, and the ox are reflectant of the four gospels and the positions that they write of concerning our Savior. For example, most have seen Matthew as the lion gospel, showing Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark is seen as the ox gospel, showing Jesus as a humble servant, a worker. Luke is seen as the man gospel, showing Jesus as the perfect man, the second Adam. And John is seen as the eagle gospel, showing Jesus as the man from heaven, the sky still. This approach also has other interpretation, he writes. But again, it's all about Jesus. Remember when we began, we said that it was all about Jesus. So these angels, these cherubim or seraphim that are standing before the Lord in the presence of Him, representing possibly the four dimensions of the Messiah Himself in their appearance. As Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 6, 2 and 3, he says, Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord host. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Wouldn't you like to see a veggie tale done of this, of Revelation? Incredible. And in verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, and were full of eyes, meaning that they see all things and within. And they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, exactly what we've just read in Isaiah, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor, verse 9, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sit on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever, 
And notice this, and cast their crowns before the Lord, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. The final act of adoration that we provide for our Savior is by casting those crowns that we have been given by him, those treasures stored for us in heaven that are accumulated in that crown, that diadem, will be cast before his feet, knowing that it was him that worked in and through us, and truly, we can take no glory for ourselves. God shares his glory with no one, the Bible says. And as we stand before God here today, as we enter his presence, as we join together in communion, let us remember that that simple, humble servant, Jesus, that came in the first coming, that instructed and led his followers in the memorial of taking communion together to remember what he did for us on our behalf. Now we see him, the living, glorious, reigning Christ. For it is him in whom we serve. It is him in whom we worship. It is him that we give all glory to. For regardless of what happens in our world today, we can always be confident that that throne is in heaven and it is not empty for God sits upon it. And he is omnipotent. He can do all things. He knows all things. He is everywhere at once. And in our relationship with him through Jesus Christ, we are governed through mercy, love, and grace to allow us to come boldly before him in his throne room at any time. That's the one thing about God that I can never stress enough, and that is His love. I don't understand it. When I read about the long-suffering of God, I, I have to just sit there and just think about it for a while because I don't fully understand it. Because I often get fed up, and maybe you do too, fed up with what's going on, fed up with people, often characterized by those words, I'm done, I'm out of here. And yet God never leaves us. He's never done with us who are His. The door is always open. His arms are always open. He's always welcoming us back. He always leaves the door open for us to return. Remember what James says. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. You take that first step back and you will find that God will meet you there. The love of God is one of those things that I think that I will need eternity to fully understand. And yet this side of eternity, I can allow the knowledge that I do have of God's love to spring in me that uh, response of love for Him. But as John saw, now remember, John was called in his gospel the one in whom Jesus loved. And the one that Jesus loved, John, is now standing in the throne room of God. And as we enter heaven, the first thing that God wants us to know is that He is on the throne. 
And though things may seem chaotic from our perspective, this side of heaven, from his perspective, everything's unfolding as planned. When I went to the Library of Congress, I was amazed to find that when I went in, the very first thing that they had displayed on the entrance to the inner chamber of the library was the Gutenberg Bible. So I asked someone there who worked there, I said, oh, that's interesting. Why did you place the Gutenberg Bible on the outside? I don't know if it's still there, but it was at that time. And what she said to me was very interesting. She said, because that book rules all others. And when I step into heaven and I see the throne room of God, I know that nothing, nothing overrules my Lord, for He is on the throne. If you want more information concerning heaven, may I recommend a few books to you. Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Heaven, is an excellent read. Dr. Lutzer, Erwin Lutzer's One Minute After You Die, is very good. And one that I hadn't personally read but had been recommended to me to read over the years is Heaven by Randy Alcorn. To give you more information, to flesh it out even more. Now, everything that we said today segues into what we will see next week. And if you think chapter 4 was good... Just wait until we get into chapter 5 together, because in heaven, someone shows up, and we're going to see things like we've never seen before. 